Thank you. Please be seated. I'd like, you to invite, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. I'd like to read to you some of the next passage. I'm going to be preaching to you this evening a sermon that it's hard to fit in any particular passage of the book of Romans. I'd like to speak to you on scripture and tradition. Um, if you're visiting with us, we're in a, in a series I'm calling Gospel Clarity, based upon some work by Michael Reeves, in which we are looking at uh, various big topics from the book of Romans in order to see especially some of the things that were just revolutionary when Luther and some of the others rediscovered them, how we saw uh, understanding the depth of the problem of sin opened up a whole new world to see the grace of our God how a justification by faith, apart from works, became the fountain of the greatest number of good works the world had ever seen poured forth. We have lots of these uh, ironies and uh, beauties, as we see again these, uh, the clarity of, your, of, of God's word come forth. But uh, I'd like to preach to you a, a sermon this evening that kind of takes an overview of the whole matter of Scripture, And I'll read to you from verse 13 of Romans chapter 4, down to the end of the chapter. Uh, Picking up more or less where we left off last time. For the promise that he, that is Abraham, would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he also was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Let's pray together. Our Father, may the Holy Spirit, who first inspired this word for our instruction, now give light and open it to the teaching and comfort and admonishment of every heart according to its need. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, if eyes, they say, are the windows of the soul... Words are the door. We understand in a very real sense that the words that somebody speaks reveal that person. They are the expression of his life, his personality, his thoughts, 
his opinions and so forth. We don't really know someone without knowing what he or she says. And surely, above and beyond anything else, this is why every Christian loves the Bible, because we love to hear the word of our God. It reveals God to us as nothing else does. We know that God is with us always, not because we necessarily feel it all the time, because often we do not. However, because of his word, as he teaches us, we are able to read it and to remember that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And how blessed it is that we have his word available to us at all times. Our spiritual lives are sustained by this word. And it's one thing to read the Bible, but it's another thing to cherish it, to hearken to it as the very voice of God for us. What would you think, for example, that if I came today and said, I have been to heaven and I have come back with a miracle for you. And I returned with a CD in my hand, right? And I said, this CD has God himself speaking and telling you what he felt was of first importance for you to know. Now, would you not be interested in this extraordinary thing to hear the voice of God with a message of such importance for you? Would you not think it beyond words important to hear what he had to say? Well, dear friends, I do have a transcription. And this is what uh, we have before us today. On this one will I look, says the Lord, on him who is of a poor and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. This is how we are to receive that which he has given to us. As I say, it's not important merely to read the Bible, but it is important that we consider how we read it. For example, we just sang a few selections from Psalm 119 as we were led in song by someone who thought about the Bible in just this way, who plainly treasured it, who loved it, who knew it. In times of trouble, he turned to it to hear the voice of his God. In times of blessing, he remembered what it said about where his blessings came from and what believers are to do with them. In times of darkness, we read, he looked to it for light. In times of confusion, he searched it for direction. If there was an answer to a life question he had, he knew he would find it there. And so Psalm 119 takes us through all the ups and downs and the confusions and troubles of life and uh, declares that all that he needs is found in the comforting words of his God. And so we find a certain reverence in the Bible for the Bible that we also ourselves need to have. This certainty, this conviction that these things are the word of our God is what makes the difference, as I'll explain a little later. Simply to say this, all this by introduction, because that same spirit is what we find in the Apostle Paul and preeminently here in his letter to the Romans. In the passage I read to you, I hope that you noticed that like the rest of the letter of Romans, it is packed full of biblical references, of citations, of quotations, of references. The theme of the letter had actually been stated back in chapter 1, in the very first sentence of the book. Maybe you'd like to look there, back in chapter 1, verse 1, where he opened it up to us in this way. He began, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, 
called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he, that is uh, God, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The last verse, by the way, of the book puts this same sentiment in a different way. I won't go there. You can look it up later. I'll actually finish the service this evening with it. The point is, uh, some scholars like to debate what it means that the Bible is inspired. But as I've shown you many times, the Bible has its own explanation on the matter. God's promises through his prophets are our scriptures. Hardly also a unique outlook to Paul in the book of Romans. Um, Referring to Psalm 119, Peter says, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. Same pattern. Referring later to Psalm 2, which I was praying earlier, the apostle said, Lord, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Or as Paul says later, the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah, the prophet, to our fathers. And one more from the Lord himself. This morning we read from, from uh, the Gospels about how Jesus quoted Psalm 110 to the same effect, or I'll quote it here from Mark's Gospel. David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So, the Holy Spirit said, Uh, Sorry, uh, David spoke by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, if you like, has a theory of inspiration, and we need to hold the same theory. Well, my uh, point to you is that the apostle has received the Bible with the same reverence, uh, with the same um, conviction that this is nothing more, nothing less than the word of our God. And I'd like to point you to one One verse in the book of Romans that puts it rather interestingly in chapter 9, verse 17, it says, uh, the scripture says to Pharaoh, chapter 9, verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up to show my power in you that my name may be declared in all the earth. Interesting. Scripture says to Pharaoh. Well, how can that be? There was no scripture at the time that Pharaoh was alive. Well, Of course, the scripture said nothing to Pharaoh. God spoke this to Pharaoh. But the point is what scripture says, God says. And uh, our author, Paul, here is able to go back and forth. Um, Other illustrations can be given simply to show you that from the beginning of this book to the end, when we consider all these different passages, we need to consider what Paul is doing, that he is... Uh, referring to passage after passage after passage as the word of our God. Some people charge us with bibliolatry, the idea that we worship a book, but that is plainly absurd. However, our hearts stand in awe of this word, and we Christians can sing Psalm 119, revering the Bible precisely because it is our God who there speaks We revere the Bible because we have found the Lord himself revealed therein. And to love the word of God is, of course, to love and reverence and trust and rejoice in God himself. And so, in passage after passage in this book, 
Paul says, it is written. He said it in our passage I read to you from chapter 4. He says it 19 more times in this short letter. Seven times he uses the word scripture, but that doesn't even tell the tale. I could not count the number of times that Paul either quoted or cited the scriptures. This is his approach. And one more thing, please, to note. This passage I read to you also makes the important point that those things that were written about Abraham in Genesis were not merely written for him, but for us who, re- who, who read. Uh, it is uh, chapter 4, verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone, but it w- that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up our Lord from the dead. So you see, the conviction is not merely that the Lord spoke these words, but that he spoke them for us. A very important point throughout this letter of Romans, for example, in chapter 15, we read, For whatever things were spoken before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. So you see, it's very difficult for me to pick out one particular passage and to say, well, this passage uh, has the... uh, all the doctrine of the Word of God in the book of Romans, uh, it's, it's right throughout. These scriptures right throughout were given for us, for the ordinary believer to read and to benefit from. They are not written for a priestly class only to read and interpret. They are written for every believer to, to, to teach us and direct us in God's will. And so, as we've seen already in this study, there would have been no Reformation had there not been a rediscovery of the Bible, especially as it was read again in its original language and then as it was translated for the common people. And as that happened in nation after nation, well, Amy Carmichael, that missionary to India, said it best, I think, the amazing thing is that everyone who reads the Bible has the same joyful thing to say about it. In every land, in every language, it is the same tale where that book is read, not with the eyes only, But with the mind and heart, the life is changed. Sorrowful people are comforted. Sinful people are transformed. People who were in the dark walk in the light. is, Is it not wonderful to think that this book, which is such a mighty power, if it but gets a chance to work in an honest heart, is in our hands today, and we can read it freely, no man making us afraid. Well, this is the general teaching of this, uh, of this uh, uh, book that I'd like to put before you. And as I've been doing in this series, I'd like briefly to explain how it is that we rediscovered this truth that was for a time submerged amidst several errors. Martin Luther single-handedly translated the whole Bible very accurately into German. In fact, to this day, the Luther Bible is still immensely popular in Germany, still kind of the standard translation in German, the way that the King James Bible is is still the standard translation in some ways in English. Luther also produced many influential commentaries, theological writings, catechisms, and sermons. Luther was the regular preacher at the town church at Wittenberg, and he said... If I could today become king or emperor, 
I would not give up my office as preacher. That was a man who loved the word of God. And I think from time to time as a minister, what a privilege do I have is to have the word of God in my hands as part of my work every day. It's, it's an awesome thing that uh, sometimes we don't fully appreciate. Now, it's important for us to remember that when Luther began his protest, the Roman church would have disagreed with nothing that I have said so far today. Indeed, they affirmed the full inspiration and authority of the Bible, much more so than they do today, actually. But what was it about Luther's teaching that was so troublesome and even offensive? Well, uh, Luther, as you know, posted those 95 theses on the Wittenberg uh, uh, University Castle Church door, sorry, the, uh, the Castle Church door, and uh, so, so began a contest, and in what Michael Reeves, the author, called round one of that contest of the Reformation, the Pope appointed a Dominican theologian named Sylvester Priorius to make the first response to these Luther these 95 Theses of Luther. Um, Luther, as you know, wanted to debate the principles. He wanted to be able to discuss indulgences, the treasury of merit, the means of grace, and all these things. And some people think that Priorius was just being careless or thoughtless, and that he didn't respond really at all to Luther's arguments. I think, however, that Priorius very quickly understood that these things were not the real issue at stake. What was at stake was not indulgences or grace. What Luther had put his finger on was the matter of the ultimate authority. In his official response to these 95 theses, Priorius wrote, quote, He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and the pontiff of Rome as an infallible rule of faith, from which the scriptures, too, draw their strength and authority, is a heretic. He wasn't going to even engage on the arguments that Luther put forward. He says, Luther, you are claiming that the scripture means something else than what the holy pontiff said. The pope has spoken. The Pope is himself an infallible rule of faith. If you want to know what the scriptures mean, the Pope has the authority to declare it and make it a rule of faith for the whole world. Yes, of course, the scriptures are from God, but the Pope is the one who can declare what they mean. And whoever contradicts the doctrine of Rome, as laid down by the head of the Church of Rome, is a heretic. That was round one. Ding, ding. Well, it wasn't long before Cardinal Cajetan had to weigh in in round two. It was a tag team match against Luther. And Cajetan argued that the scripture must be interpreted by the Pope, who is above not only councils, but the Pope is above scripture itself. Why, how do we even know what the books of the Bible are, people still ask today. Is it not uh, a mystery? How do you Protestants know what books of the Bible are in the Bible? The, we, we know because we have the Pope's infallible declaration. Well, that's a more modern take, but the point that Cajetan makes is that the, the Pope decides what the Bible is and what the Bible means through the teaching magisterium of the church, 
Uh, he has infallibly declared such things. And Luther replied, quote, His holiness abuses Scripture. I deny that he is above Scripture. And this became the heart of the early Reformation debate. Pretty quickly, indulgences were out and authority was in. The Roman theologians insisted on the infallibility of the Pope, and the more they did, the more the Luther Luther insisted on the authority and the infallibility of the Bible alone. Luther wrote, the saints could err in their writings and in the sin in their lives, but the scriptures cannot err. He said, look, popes and councils have very often contradicted each other. Indeed, uh, a council had just in the previous century overturned another council, called it a robber council. No, this is what we believe. Well, uh, this is the heart of the difference today between Rome and the Reformers. Still today, Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1992, says both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And so it is that the Protestants in reply have taken the slogan of Luther and the Reformation, sola scriptura. We don't deny there are other authorities to which the scripture enjoins obedience, but we say that these are all subject to error. But the Bible alone must be acknowledged as our supreme authority and allowed to overturn and overrule all other claims. Okay, so this is the contest. This is the question that came up. It was a major question How else can we know what the truth is? I mean, we we have the Bible, yes, but who will infallibly declare its meaning to us? Luther said, the Pope abuses it. Who is right? Had this controversy occurred two centuries earlier, as in the days of John Wycliffe, or even a century earlier, as in the days of Jan Hus, the matter would have been rather easily resolved. Rome would have simply instructed the civil ruler to seize the heretic and deliver him to trial for possible imprisonment or death. But things in 1518 were more complex. Luther concluded his correspondence with Priorius with a not-so-subtle reminder. Luther said, you make the pope into an emperor in power and in violence. The emperor Maximilian And the Germans will not tolerate this. And he was right. So the next year, Luther debated Johann Eck, another Catholic theologian at Leipzig. Eck kept pressing Luther to submit to the tradition of the church in its conciliar decisions, in its canon law, which he could quote from memory, Luther responded by quoting what he knew best from memory, the Bible. Eck concluded Luther erred by his unwillingness to submit to the Pope's infallible interpretations of Scripture and said that the German monk was no different than the heretic Jan Hus, who had put his own interpretations above the Pope's. That evening, Luther went back and read a little more of Hus and uh, came back saying, yeah, ich bin ein Hussite. Yeah, I'm a Hussite. Huss had been burned as a heretic by the church, and it was at this point that Luther thought he'd probably be a martyr. 
The church's response was certainly swift and decisive. In January 1521, Luther was excommunicated and condemned as a heretic. A few months later, at the Diet of Worms, Luther was charged by the Holy Roman Empire, asked to recant of his numerous errors in several books, and Luther took his stand on the authority of the Bible, memorably declaring, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by evident reason, for I put my faith neither in popes nor councils alone, since it is established that they have erred again and again and contradicted one another, I am bound by the scriptural evidence adduced by me, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything, for it is neither safe nor right to act against one's conscience. God help me. Amen. Nobody was quite sure what happened after he gave that speech. He was uh, being arraigned before the great forces of the nobility, the emperor. Luther gave his speech, and he just went to the door. And he walked out and escaped. He went into hiding. He was abducted uh, by his uh, prince in order to protect him. And then something amazing happened. I did nothing. Luther wrote, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip and my Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did so much damage to it. I did nothing, he wrote. The word did it all. Well, that's a little bit about the remarkable story. Still, perhaps you have a question in your mind, but, but how, it is, how is it that we know? Uh, the, 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 the Pope says, I can tell you infallibly what the truth is. We Protestants, we don't have that, do we? What are we to make of this? Well, I talked to a Catholic friend of mine um, more recently, and He said, you know, the church gave you the Bible. You wouldn't have a Bible without Rome. How would we even know what the Bible is? I did a little more reading on this to find out exactly when the church gave us the Bible. I wonder when that happened, when Moses came down the mountain at first, or was it when Revelation was finished? When when, when, when was it that that Rome gave us the Bible? Uh, The New Catholic Encyclopedia uh, says that the canon of Scripture was not infallibly declared until 1546. Quote, According to Catholic doctrine, the proximate criterion for biblical canon is the infallible decision of the church. Okay, that's what we want. When was the infallible decision of the church given? This decision was not given until rather late in the history of the church at the Council of Trent. Before that time, there was some doubt about the canonicity of certain biblical books. Um, 1546. Likewise, by the way, the New Advent Catholic Encyclopedia says the Tridentine Decrees, that is the Council of Trent, from which the list of books is extracted, was the first infallible and effectually promulgated pronouncement on the canon addressed to the Church Universal. I found this interesting. 
Rome gave us the, the Bible. The church gave us the Bible in 1546. What did we do before then? Back to our passage, which I haven't forgotten, by the way. I, I realize it's a very different kind of sermon this evening, and we're skipping over a lot of things, but even in the passage, how did Abraham become, quote, fully convinced, fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to perform? There is another kind of infallible certainty, you see, not one that comes from a guy with a funny hat. Not something that had to wait for the 16th century. An infallible certainty that comes from a higher source. To illustrate it to you, Peter was asked by the Lord who he was. You remember? Peter made that confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. How did Peter know that for sure? Did somebody have to tell him? Was there a council that had to meet? Was there a vision or a voice from heaven? He had only seen the Lord's deeds and heard the Lord's words, but of course a great many other people had seen and heard the same thing and did not believe that he was the Son of God. Maybe John the Baptist come back from the dead, or maybe Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets, in such a confusing environment with so many claims. How could Peter have been persuaded of the truth? Well, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see the source of that certainty that Paul had, that Abraham had, and that we are to have. The way in which the word of God is reverenced is not a conviction that comes to us through any man, any council, or any church. God creates a conviction, a point of knowledge and certainty in the mind that all that, in this case, Peter had seen and heard was true, that this is the Christ. It didn't mean that he believed without evidence. Why, there was an abundance of evidence. It wasn't irrational. It was the only reasonable conclusion. And whereas the enemies of Jesus turned their eyes aside and said that Jesus misled the people, Peter was only speaking the honest truth. Well, in the same way, these scriptures that we have, well, we read them and, and, and we say, these are not like any other writings. Or as the people said about Jesus, these are not the words of a madman. Our, our confession of faith has a, a wise statement about these things that objectively speaking, objectively speaking, it clearly evidences itself to be the word of God. We read, uh, the authority of the scriptures for which it ought to be believed and obeyed doesn't depend on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly on God, who is truth itself and the author, it of, uh, author thereof. Now, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the, of the holy scripture, and it says, the heavenliness of the matter the power or efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of man's way of salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it abundantly evidences itself to be the word of God. 
okay, if we could weigh it in a scale, uh, clearly it would go, ding, word of God. Objectively speaking, it abundantly evidences itself that way. Yet notwithstanding, it goes on, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness in and through our hearts. That's why somebody will say, well, the Bible is full of errors. And I say, well, show me one because I've been preaching the word for 20 years and I still have yet to find one. There are things that are hard to understand, it's true. And yet, my conviction is eminently reasonable. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Or uh, Calvin, a reformer of Geneva, in other words, he wrote, as to their question, how can we be assured that this has sprung from God unless we have recourse to the decree of the church? How do we know this is the Bible without the church telling us? Well, if somebody asked, how do we know light from dark? white from black, sweet from bitter. Indeed, Scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black do things their color, or sweet and bitter, things their taste. But this same Spirit, he writes, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what had been divinely commanded. It's objectively true, but the eyes of unbelievers are darkened. Our convictions are eminently reasonable, but our conviction does not ultimately come from an argument. It comes from the voice of God speaking to us. In conclusion, we need truth that we can trust. We need something we can rely upon because... So many in this world are not trustworthy. We can't trust our feelings. Things change too easily. Sometimes we are like that diver in the dark. We don't know which way is up. We can't see what's before us. We need to have the unchanging truth that we can build our lives on. And so God has given us his word. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. Now, speaking to saints this evening, um, perhaps there's somebody here who you feel like there is a lack of clarity and direction in your own life. You feel that you yourself have nowhere to stand, that the ups and downs of this world have uh, left you without any place of hope or certainty. What you long for is not, I'm afraid, to be found in any man or church except that one who is the Word made flesh. He alone has what we need. And so I point you to him as the one who will lead you forward and to be able to... uh, What what do we read here? To become fully convinced that what God has promised, he is able to perform. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That was not written for his sake, 
but for ours. For God's righteousness will also be imputed to us when we trust in his holy name. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for giving us this light and this lamp. Your words are truth. We pray that as we come once again to this table.